Welcome to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that features string players who are making their mark in the world. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. Sarah Charnas is truly a rock star. You may know her as Sarah Pink Violin, her Instagram handle. She has a hot pink six-string viper that has become her trademark instrument. She has played all over the world with groups like Trans-Siberian Orchestra, The Chainsmokers, The Jonas Brothers, and Sigala. She has charted with her own music on the Hot 100 Electro House Chart. She's played Radio City Music Hall, Carnegie Hall, the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts. She has headlined music festivals as far away as South Africa. She's been center court for the Chicago Bulls. She's been on the Today Show and she's just getting warmed up. You are listening to some of her original music now. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the only shop on the planet that deals exclusively in electric bowed strings. No other place in the world has a selection of instruments, the array of gear, and the years of experience in the field. No other retailer has an in-house luthier who personally sets up every instrument. There's nowhere else where you can play and experiment with instruments and gear from all over the world. We literally have customers fly in from all over the planet to pick out the perfect instrument for them. But we'll talk more about that later. Sarah and I met up on a sidewalk cafe in New York City on a beautiful day this past spring. You're gonna hear a lot of noise, some traffic, some people walking by. Just imagine you've got a killer cup of coffee and it'll be just like you're sitting at the table with us. So thanks for listening. Here's my chat with Sarah Charnas, rock star violinist. So, so where are you originally from? You're from here? Boston. Oh, okay. Yep, originally from Boston, originally, um, you know, I grew up in the sort of Boston metro area, did all my studying in the conservatory. Um, sorry, That's all good. I'll just set it closer to you. Um, so I did everything at, um, from zero to 18, was at New England Conservatory, and then I went over to um, University of Michigan to do my bachelor's in performance. Um, right. I remember yeah, bachelor's that. in music. I was at Michigan State. Oh, amazing. Okay. So we're not supposed to like each other, but we can anyway. That's okay. Spartans, right? Yeah. Spartans? Yeah. Okay, got that right. Um, <laughs> I'm impressed. Okay. You're not um, a big sports ball person, huh? It would never was, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so, yeah, no, long story short, finished up in Michigan, came here, and then started, you know, getting involved in the music scene here. So that, that was sort of my sort of like trajectory. And I met Mark when I was just a kid. Um, he came to my music camp. He wasn't, you know, he I think he had just had Elijah. Okay. Elijah was like four, and um, you know he was still touring and doing all this, you know, his crazy stuff. I think he was with TSO at the time, and um, came to my music camp, did the big demo on, you know, whatever. I was at a Greenwood music camp, um, and then I got one of his instruments like a couple years later, a year later, and uh, from that point on, that was sort of when things started moving in that direction for me. Now, your first Viper, when you bought it, was it completely hot pink? Yep. This is the exact Viper that I play to this day. I have never gotten a replacement, never, um, 
Yeah, it's the same exact instrument. So yeah, I love it. It's my it's my baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you were doing like the conservatory classical violinist thing? Very much so. I was very much in the conservatory. I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like I was kind of like, okay, this doesn't really feel good for me personally. It feels very boxy and limited. Right. Um, but I didn't, you know, I knew I was going to college. I knew that at college, or, you know, University of Michigan, there weren't too many other trajectories that I could be on aside from being a jazz major and I think there was like one jazz violin major there and yeah. that was it like it wasn't like really the place to be for that so really the school that I had looked at pretty seriously was Berkeley right. um, but my parents were like no we don't want to pay for that like you can kind of do that on your own it's crazy expensive it's crazy expensive Berkeley was really expensive Mac Laser uh, is awesome I mean he's the violin teacher there he's amazing and I take some lessons and master classes with him over the years, but I, you know, they wanted me to have some sort of backup plan should this not work out or should I decide that I didn't want to do this. And I guess that's fine, but um, that would probably have been my other school of choice or just nothing at all, quite frankly. Right. I don't know that I would have necessarily been in any different place right now. I didn't go to music school. No, and I really, quite honestly, if I were to do it again, I would have just kind of skipped college was super fun but I would have skipped right over it and just kind of come here because I I don't think anything would have been different at all so you graduated from Michigan you did undergrad there or grad I did my undergrad there and then I never did grad I just came here so you came straight to New York and said I'm going to straight to New York I'm going to do this thing said I'm going to do this thing started off really pathetically slow Um, you know, because I didn't know anybody here, and I was kind of new, and I didn't even know how to begin. Yeah, so started. so tell tell everybody like, what does that look like? I, so I, I moved to New York, and I so got an I apartment. So I moved to New York. I got an apartment. I was living in, you know, in New York they have these one bedroom apartments where you can put up these walls. So I did that with a roommate. So I was basically. I had the real bedroom and she slept in the living room with the wall or so there was some situation going on that was really highly very New York City and you know people in other cities do not struggle with this um so we did that and I you know really I made like 10 grand my first year in New York City like total I mean I, it was like so bad like I really had no idea what I was doing so I mean I think my the the big thing my big message is everybody's got to start somewhere you, you can't I, you know I just I knew nobody so it was really so how tough. did you get your first gigs here gosh I started you know going to Rockwood you know meeting friends making friends um meeting you know trying to just like get my hands and just playing for free a lot just to meet people and like you know doing whatever I had to do to just get sort of in a circle of people where I could make connections and make friends and you know have some sort of circle and there is a really tight-knit circle of people here that are you know working and playing and whatever but I didn't really know what was going on um and then so I came here in 2007 in 2010 I did the TSO tour uh for a little while and then um you know, slowly I just started getting my, my feet wet. And it was a really slow progression. Nothing happens overnight. I mean, anybody says this, you're an overnight yeah. success. Yeah, overnight success okay. stories are usually like 15 years of hard work. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, so it was really a 
a slow progression. Um, and I and I urge people to to look at that because it's not nothing happens overnight. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I got started, and then just slowly but surely started gigging more, playing more, getting you know, I, you know, I hired a. Uh, one of my best friends to be my manager, which was like probably one of the best things I ever did. Uh, yeah, she was awesome. It was great. She, you know, stuck her neck out in ways that I wasn't and gave me a fresh perspective. And, and that was an awesome fit for the years that we were together. It was great. Um, and yeah, that's kind of that was that was how I got started. So your career now, you're, yeah. I mean, you're all over the place. I'm seeing you on NBA half times and. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's been a, a good. It's been a good run. I'm lucky. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's been a good. It's been a good run, and I've had a lot of opportunities. Um, just living here, there's so much to do. So I feel like New York City is also like my best friend right. in many ways because there it just presents you with so many different things. Although not to say that you can't be successful and live elsewhere. Many people are. Sure. So. Um, you know, it's just what works for you, I think. So your artistic vision as far as, like, saying, this is me, how, how did you sort of form that? Was it something that just sort of happened, or was this a, a very no, intentional thing? No, it was a total progression. I mean, I, I started getting into the, when I was in my 20s, I was going to clubs a lot. I was really interested in what DJs what? were doing. I was really interested in electronic music. I started really... Um, trying to collaborate more electronic music was so instrumental and not vocal especially you know even five years ago there's so much instrumental stuff going on and I I was really interested in that so um you know I started making my own music and um, working with producers and collaborating and um trying to form my own identity and I wouldn't you know as violinists it's really I think some violinists put themselves in oh you know I, I do hip hop I do trap, or I do um, dance, or I do whatever. I mean, I'm a violinist. I do a lot of different things. Like, I'm not a vocalist, so I don't really need to pigeonhole myself quite as much as I feel like a vocalist does, because what we do as violinists is so unique and different anyway, and not really so mainstream, that I feel like it's great to say that you can do a lot of different things, um, and not necessarily pigeonhole yourself into one genre. So, um, but I definitely found a home in electronic music, for sure. So that's where everything started taking off for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, especially in the club scene and, and, you know, doing festivals and performances and things like that. That's where I felt very much at home. Um, but I did a hip-hop track and had great fun doing it. And um, I think there's just so many different directions you can go. So I certainly wouldn't say that I wouldn't do, you know, something different. So, right. for sure. Just take a quick break to hear some of Sarah's music. This is a track called Grip. It's a collaboration between Sarah and Disco Killers, a DJ duo. It features British pop vocalist Jem Cook.
as a conservatory trainer, I assume Suzuki growing up. Yes. Right? Oh, you got it. So then how do you sort of wrap your mind around, I'm going to improv or I'm going to write my own stuff? Where, where did oh that switch Oh, my God. It was so hard, too. Don't get me wrong. That was rough. And Mark, Mark would tell you all about this because he deals with this all the time. Sure. Um, you know, we're, as, as classical players, we're really not trained to be musicians. We're trained to read black notes on a page. Um, and that's that's an interpretation of music, but that's not being a creator in any way. You're kind of um, reading what somebody else created. Uh, Mozart was a creator, and Beethoven was a creator in so many ways, but, but what we're doing is regurgitating what somebody else wrote. And we're, you know, we're, we're certainly excellent at our craft, um, and it takes a lot of time and focus and energy to perfect a craft, but that doesn't make us great musicians. Um, so teaching myself how to create and how to make something out of nothing and how to you know, come up with my own ideas was something that was very, very difficult because I hadn't ever thought outside that box of what's going on on the page. Um, it took many, many years, honestly, many, many years to sort of train my brain to think just a little bit differently. I remember when I was playing with a band and all of a sudden it was time for my solo. It was like I froze. I didn't know what to do. Where, what notes? What, what do I play? Um, so I think with experience and with every time that you are put in a situation and you're forced to think differently, you grow in some capacity and you learn something. Um, and that was really important. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, how much of your music school background do you feel like you're like you're kicking in? Are you sort of reaching back and grabbing some of that theory? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. Listen, if I hadn't gone to music school, if I hadn't had that classical background, I don't personally know what my story would have been. I don't know that I would be such a great technical player. Um, at all. I, I was actually just having this conversation with Hayden. We were talking about, you know, what's everybody's background? Did you t- who took lessons? Who didn't? And I think Hayden had actually, he's a phenomenal player. Yeah, he's great. Phenomenal. He's totally out of this world. Um, but he was saying that, you know, he didn't really have a whole lot of, sh- you know, structured conservatory type training. I, d- I don't believe I could yeah. double check me on that one. But I, we were talking about that. Um, but I think that's more unusual. It is. A little bit. It's a little more unusual. Most of the, you know, players that you see these days, I mean, even Mark, he went to Juilliard, a very, you know, classical background, um, whether or not he, he, he loves that or not. But uh, um, but that's part of, you know, who he is, and that's sure. part of who I am. Um, so I, I think it's important to recognize that that was, you know, that, that's a piece of who we are. Um, and without it, I don't know that I would be able to play half as well as I played it at. So, yeah. so uh, say a typical month for you, what, what sort of gigs are you playing? Where are you traveling? What, what kind of music are you doing? Sure. So a typical month for me could look like, um, you know, a couple shows in New York City. It could be... Uh, you know, I try try to do as much here as I can, just because you know, being on the road is fun. But it's yeah. you know, I I have a life here that I, I really love. Um, so you know, I try to do a lot. It depends what time of year. In September, there's so much fashion and fun stuff going on here um, that's really great. So I try to get really involved in that, um, doing shows and things like that. Maybe I'll do a concert here or there. Um, there'll be you know 
just a whole lot of different stuff. A whole lot of different things all over the map, I, I would say. And then I've got the stuff that I'm doing with EYS that I do, you know, probably once or twice a month I'm doing that. Um, so I'm really in and out for all different, all different types of things. So are you still doing some classical gigs here and there? Not as much. I have to say that's really not... I, I do two things a year. I, I Every now and then I'll try to throw a chamber group together, you know, do a concert in the gallery or something like that. Um, but it's really not been my focus since I've been here. I've kind of um, just don't, you know, unfortunately I don't have so much time to do it. And those things take a lot of rehearsal and a lot of time and just all that kind of stuff. So I, I haven't done as much possible maybe as I would like, but you know I'm okay with that. Yeah. She doesn't play as much classical as she once did, but she still has that influence. Here's her version of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, called Pink Swan. So you were talking about collaborations, and uh, yeah. I've seen a bunch of like the stuff that you've done with Azima. Yeah, oh, she's rocking awesome. She's uh, great. Interviewed her yesterday. Oh, she's so fun. Yeah. yeah, she's great. She's totally great. Um, um, and then yeah. your social media stuff, you're always keeping going. So yeah, absolutely. Maybe talk about the role that social media has played in your career. Uh, sure. Well, when I first came to New York, there was Facebook. Um, I don't know that there was even such thing as a Facebook page. You could have like a personal page right. where you had to be friends with everybody. There was no Instagram. And I don't know if Twitter was around yet. I think it was maybe just starting to uh, to come to fruition. But um, so social media really came about while I was here. Um, Instagram was the big you know, if you think about all of the social media platforms, oh, yeah. you know, you think about Instagram being the big, you know, ticket item. I think it's for, by far the best for us. For performers, you know, everybody's, you know, crazy about Snapchat, and Snapchat is great, but for performers and musicians, I think that Instagram is so wonderful because we're able to showcase our work in such a way that really highlights what it is that we do. You know, Snapchat's great, but it doesn't have that professional aspect to it. You can't upload that, or maybe you can, but it's harder to upload that professional video to, you know, to Snapchat. Snapchat's a much more personal look at your life. You know, right. what am I doing on Tuesday at 5 o'clock, you know, <laughs> getting a cup of coffee or something. I don't right. know. It's not it, as good for sharing your art. It's your not business. as good yeah. for sharing your art, um, I think, as Instagram is. And Instagram just, you know, even recently, you know, allowed you to share one minute long videos. Like oh, that changed old. everything. That changed yeah, the, everything, The 15-second thing was like, oh my so God, what short. can I say in 15 but seconds? But that's like even in the last year. So it's kind of unbelievable how much social media has been able to shape and help artists get their name out there that otherwise wouldn't be able to because what platforms did artists have 25 years ago? Well, they had record labels. Right. That was it. Now we have our own platforms, um, and we really can showcase our work. We don't need record labels anymore. Who needs that? I've got YouTube. I've got um, Instagram. I've got so many ways to share what I'm doing with the world that 
you don't need those more corporate um, platforms, although they can still be great. Sure. Um, we don't need them anymore. So social media really helped me a lot in terms of reaching out to a fan base, sharing my music, sharing what I do, um, and you know, I think everyone should be grateful for it, even though I think it has its downfalls at times. Yeah. You know, I was I was talking I forget with um, I was talking with Evan Gar about this who plays with Aldiniola. Yeah. And and we were talking about how now you've got access to all of these artists all yeah. over the world. You know, I'm friends with guys in India oh, and absolutely. guys in the Philippines and, and people in uh, Brazil and there's people all over the world That's that awesome. we don't even speak the same language. No. But we can share ideas with each other and we can be influenced by each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I take lessons from Alex Depew mm-hmm. who's in Mexico. Oh yeah, and it's amazing. it's all Skype. So and we actually did a track recently with David um, David Sayre, who is a DJ in Mexico, and we managed to connect through social media. How would we have ever connected before? I don't know. Um, I got involved with something. God, it was a guy in Italy who asked me to do something, uh, you know, some project. And when would that have ever happened before? How would we have ever known each other? Um, at the same time, I think social media, you have to be really careful with social media. Because um, it is very personal. You're putting your life out to a lot of different people. And I think it can also be, you know, uh, I was just reading an article in the New York Times about how we always put our best selves on social media. It was this fascinating article in New York Times about how when somebody buys a new car, there are more articles on people buying BMWs than there are Ford, you know, whatever, cars. Right. Because what we like to do on social media is showcase the best part of ourselves, but not our whole selves. Um, so it's really interesting, even though BMWs are just a fraction of that. Boards that right. are sold, they're so much more present on Facebook. Why is that? Yeah, nobody wants to put nobody a picture of their, their Ford Focus. <laughs> Correct. So it's really interesting. So that was a really interesting article about how we are very preoccupied with showcasing the best versions of ourselves on social media, and I think that that can also be as a you know as somebody who has a lot of young followers, I like to be really cognizant. Okay, I'm not perfect. And right. what I put on Instagram, sort of the best of the best of Sarah. Right. But it's not all of me, and it's certainly right. not the worst parts of me. So you have to kind of have to be aware of that with social media. Well, I think the the whole keeping up with the Joneses yes. mentality, the comparison culture. Yeah. That if if you allow yourself to think that what you're seeing on social media is is 100 real, it, it, it'll make you insane going to make you crazy. So I think, um, you know, there's room for everybody in this world. Yeah. Yeah. There's room for everybody in this world. I think I was reading one of Meredith Zima's posts and she, she wrote that recently and I was like, girl, I totally feel you because there is room for everybody here. Um, and and it's, it's just about finding your voice and your path. Yeah. Do you know Taylor Davis? Sounds really familiar. Yeah, she does the uh, a lot of the gamer covers and stuff. She's out in California. Okay, no, I don't um, violinist. But she's got a huge following. She's some 1.9 million subscribers oh, on YouTube or something. She's really huge. But she's she's a friend, and she's been dealing with recently a little bit of uh, sort of the, the trolls. I don't know if you've had to deal with a lot of trolls on your on your post where. You get like these highly inappropriate things from yes. guys, yes. and just and then just people trying to be just hateful yes. and mean. Yeah, you always get that at every post that you post. Um, 
there's always somebody that's got something to say. Um, so it's unfortunate. I think the other thing that social media does is that it takes the human out of us. So we're all human beings. We all have feelings. And, you know, just because somebody, you know, I think somebody's Instagram page almost, yes, it's personal, but it's not them. It's not the, it's not the person themselves. It's just a page. And that almost makes it, I think some people feel like it makes it okay to say something that you would never say to that person's face. Um, and I think that's the unfortunate thing. Um, so it's, you know, but it, overall, it's a great thing. Listen, I think social media has helped all of us. Tremendously, so. Yeah, I think when I yeah. when I had my first couple of trolls, I, I felt like I had to respond to them. Yeah. And then, and then you sort of learn over time that you, you just you just can't. No, it's just better not to get involved and not to um, not to respond in that way. I, I try not to, unless it's something really you know inappropriate. I, I tend not. To, I tend to. Ignore it. Yeah. We talked a minute ago about collaborations. Here's one with Sarah and hip-hop duo Benetton. It's called Classical Rap. I want to take a minute here to thank our sponsor for this episode, Electric Violin Shop. There really is no other place where you can try as many different electric violins, violas, or cellos. Located within 15 minutes of the Raleigh-Durham Airport, it's an easy place to visit. Not sure if you want four, five, six, or even seven strings? Not sure if you want an acoustic electric, a semi-hollow body, or a full solid body? Need a pickup for your acoustic? Want some advice on amps, effects, looping, wireless technology, recording, touring, or anything else electric strings related? We have experience and expertise to help you. Our customers range from beginners to ultra-high level touring pros. Instruments are in all budget ranges from under $600 to nearly $10,000. The world's first pro-level 3D printed violin we have it. A double neck violin? Yep. You like Sarah's Viper? We have a whole wall full of them. Zetas? A huge selection. Yamaha, NS Design, Wood Violins, Bridge, Stratton Skull, and so many others. Check out our website at electricviolinshop.com and see how we can help you. Um, I sort of like how when on your social media you are Sarah Pink Violin. <coughs> uh, oh, yeah. So yeah. you are Sarah Pink Violin more than I mean your name is on there. Yeah. But but you sort of created like this alternate I say not really an alternate persona, but maybe maybe like a yeah. stage name. No, I mean it was it was sort of my my full name Sarah Tarnas was always meant to be there. What what I always struggled with is at shows audience members or people it would be very loud, somewhat something like this. People would say, Oh, what's your Instagram? Or how do I follow you? Right. And to spell out phonetically my last name was just so exhausting that I was like, you know what? No, this is not 
people are going to remember Sarah Right. It just started out as, as innocently as like, oh gosh, I really don't want to spell out my last name for people. It's kind of hard to spell. It doesn't. It's not really easy. They're going to miss a letter, and then right. they won't find me. But everyone knows how to spell pink. Most people know how to spell violin. So I felt like it was a little bit easier to say, okay, this is how you follow me. So that's honestly how it started. Was just ease of which, ease of communication. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of just became a thing. I don't know. Does it sort of maybe help? create a little bit more of a barrier between your professional and personal life though yeah I mean I'm I have like my own uh, actually I have a different last name now I got married and I changed my name anyway um, so my current last name is actually different than even Charnis but um, yeah it definitely did it creates some persona mostly it separates me I don't know that there's any too many other people playing pink violins maybe there are a few um, but certainly felt like I could distinguish myself a little bit that way right. um, from all the millions of other violinists that there are. So it works, yeah. you know, whatever, take it or leave it. People can take it for what it is, face value. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this hot pink water bottle here. Oh, yeah, 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 and yeah So course. is this like the, is this obviously it's your love, favorite color? Yeah. yeah. Why not? I love pink. So how, how did that start? Was it just, you know... Pink's my favorite color, and I want a hot pink Pink violin. was my favorite color. I said to Mark when I was about 15 years old, and you have a pink stand. Yeah, I do, because it's easy to find. And, and look at my shoes. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, so I said to Mark when I was about 15, I said, I really, I said, what colors can you make my violin? What colors can you do? He said, oh, I can do anything. I can do blue. I can do black. I can do, you know, we can put a big fire, you know, torch down the side of it. Um... And I said, no, 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 I, I really, really want pink. I mean, I was 15. Like, what 15-year-old yeah, sure. doesn't want pink? Um, and I really want it to sparkle, too. And he said, oh, we can make that happen. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay, great, let's do it. And there, lo and behold, comes back this hot pink violin, and I was totally in love with it. And then I sort of was like, okay, you know, that's kind of my thing. Like, that's just me. As a, yeah. I'm a girly girl, and um, this worked. It worked for me. So yeah. it just, it was an identity that worked. And I think also, like, not being afraid to be feminine in uh, sort of rock and roll, very male world, even yeah. electronic world, is okay. We can be girls, and that's yeah. okay. And we can still stand up with the rest of everybody. Um, and being a strong female was always something that was very important to me. Yeah. So, so, yeah, talk about that a little bit, about gender and, and sort of a male-dominated business, really. Absolutely. Um, there are some great female rock and rollers um, that I admire even now more so, especially in the string world. We've got so many awesome female violinists, cellists. Um, but I think that rock and roll and electronic music especially is so male-dominated. Um, and I don't know why that is. I've, I've had conversations with people many times about what, what is it about this that doesn't attract women or that attracts fewer women than right. men, um, certainly. Um, and in electronic music, we thought, you know, we thought a lot about that. Why are there not more female DJs? Why are all the DJs men? What is up with this? Why aren't women more equally represented in this in this field? I thought, maybe it has to be, is it computers? Is it this idea of this... Uh, you know, I've gone back and forth so many times trying to, think, to pinpoint what is it about this field that doesn't attract women. And I'm still not exactly entirely sure. I don't think that I've found an answer exactly yet. But um, I know that I love what I do. I love playing music. I love being a woman in music. And if I can 
encourage other young female musicians to pursue music and um, not be afraid of being feminine in music, then that's great. Um, and I had so many female role models and people that I looked up to that I thought were just awesome, um, that were strong women. Uh, and that's really important to me, too, um, is to ins- also, you know, inspire young young women and yeah. young men, um, you know, to pursue music and not be afraid of being being girly. Because right. that's okay. It is. It's more than okay. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and that's really the thing about art is, is, is in, in each artist's expression of themselves they're giving other people to express themselves even if that self is different you know right. don't don't be like me well I mean be like me to the extent that you're embracing who you are right exactly but don't try to be me because I'm better at being me than you could ever be it was so funny I was having that conversation with Mark too uh, we were driving we were at an EYS gig and he said you know he said something like you know your, your music is really different than mine and I, you know, I said yeah it is he goes but I really like it really it clicks I said well you know if I were trying to be you, I wouldn't be as good a version of you as you are. You're the best version of you that there is. Yeah. And I'm the best version of me that there is. And, you know, whoever, you know, Hayden and all the other violinists, everybody has their own identity. And, yeah, we're all violin players. And I think one of the things that's interesting about violin players is that we're sort of, people think that, you know, there's only one violin, there can only be one violinist out there. But look how many amazing guitar players and drummers there are, and everybody's sort of widely accepted. Why can there only be, like, three violinists that get to, you know, enjoy success? There's so many different players with so many different styles and so much to offer that I would love to see the violin in and of itself be less pigeonholed and made more mainstream. So that, you know, there can be a fantastic Irish fiddle player and there can be a great, you know, whoever. But, but this idea that there can only be one great violinist is a concept that I can't stand. So, yeah. This is Sarah's latest release, a single called What You Need. It's available now on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Search for Sarah Charnes, S-A-R-A-H-C-H-A-R-N-E-S-S. So talk about, we're going to pivot a little bit here, sure. and, and talk about gear. I mean, obviously we've talked about your violin, so describe your, your violin for people who, who haven't seen Obviously it's this Hot Pink Flying V. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Hot Pink Flying V. It's, it's uh, uh, made by Mark, uh, Mark Wood. Um, it has six strings, 
Uh, I do not have frets. I never wanted frets. Um, had I relearned the instrument today, I would have taken frets because um, I think the way I play violin is very much like a violin player. The way certain people play the viper is very much like a guitar player. Um, I would have tried to learn it as a guitar player if I had redone it today. So it's just a different technique and it's a different way of thinking. Um, so for me, yeah, I enjoy not having frets. I don't know that I could switch over to frets now. I mean, maybe I could, but it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't feel right, right all the way. But, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I adore my instrument. I have so much fun with it. Uh, and it's great. It, I love not having to put my chin down. For me, that's absolutely essential. I move quite a bit when I play. And for me, I, I see a lot of violinists really struggling with this idea that they, I have a, I personally have a very, very long neck, so I, I always had trouble holding the instrument, and I got a lot of shoulder pain, that was really a part of what I dealt with, especially, you know, growing up, when I went through those major growth spurts, my shoulder would just kill trying to hold this instrument, so for me, not having to put my chin down was just this enormously gratifying feeling of, oh, I'm free, I'm free from the constraints of my instrument, because my... My whole uh, concept or my whole idea was that the violin was invented by a 300-pound man that could sort of <laughs> shove it into his neck fat, and it just sort of stuck there. If you think about it, because yeah, we didn't have true. any of those fancy shoulder rests 300 years ago. Those were, those were much more modern. Yeah, I don't remember back that far. Maybe you do. But... <laughs> Who knows? But all I know is that this, you know, I have a with my acoustic violin, a wonderful bond music uh, shoulder rest, which without it, I would be completely lost. Yeah, Who I don't knows? know how people play without a shoulder rest. Well, they, they're, they're, yeah. you know, you get people that are, you know, 300 pounds and right. you know, just very short in stature. I mean, people didn't weren't very tall 300 years ago right. either, and they were quite heavy. So it actually made perfect sense for a 300-pound man who was short in stature. It fit right in between his chin and his shoulder right. with no, no, not much else needed. But now we look very different. We all have different bodies. Uh, women are playing the violin. They never used to before. And um, so I think for me, it was just so freeing to not have to have to put my chin down. So that was just huge. Yeah. So what sort of, uh, what sort of rig are you running through? Are you plugging pretty much straight into a... So, what I currently do for a lot of shows, and what my shows are a little bit different than, you know, they, they change from place to place. Um, I use a, for me, I live in Manhattan, so I have to be, I, I have this conversation with people all the time. I have to be um, extremely portable. Um, that's an, it's an enormously important part of being successful, uh, a successful musician. Uh, for me is to, is to be portable. So I run everything through like a Line 6 pod and then I run everything through a wireless. Um, and I'm getting a pretty decent, clear sound out of my instrument uh, currently that I'm really happy with. Um, then I asked her, you know, once I've got that really good, clear sound through the Line 6, I've got all the pedals that, you know, I can distort and run and, um, you know, all the different things that I can run. But I don't always bring all of my pedals to every single show because a lot of times I don't have the option, you know, if I'm doing a fashion show, I can't have 16 pedals lined up at the base of a runway. I just, you get one shot, you have one sound, that's your performance, it's three minutes long, and 
you got what you got. Um, so I have to be really selective about what gear I bring and wear because a lot of times there's just no room for whatever rig I think I want to have. Right. So, and that's another thing for violinists is this whole exploration of effects. Yes. Maybe talk a little bit about your journey on, on that and oh, sort yeah, of your relationship absolutely. with your effects. So, I think first and foremost, before you start playing with effects, you want to make sure that you sound really good playing whatever it is that you're playing or trying to play. If it doesn't sound really great on its own, it's not going to sound great if you try to stick a lot of distortion on it. So if what you're working on is really out of tune on its own, putting distortion on does not help. It's going no, to it'll just, expose it even more. It's going, to extro- it's going to expose it even more. So I don't practice with effects. I mean, I practice with effects, but I like to say I like to have a really, really great, clean approach to what I'm doing first before I start sticking the distortion on whatever I'm doing. Um, and then, you know... Obviously, using looping machines, using wah-wah pedals, you have to practice with those because those take enormous amounts of work just to learn. And, you know, really starting now to use more looping machines. I was just playing around with that a couple of weeks ago with a beatboxer friend of mine. And um, we were playing around with the loop machine and trying to figure out exactly how we were going to implement it into our show. But it takes enormous amounts of time. And I feel like a loop machine... Um, for example, it has to be a part of your piece. You have to rehearse with it. That is, it's another instrument. So that that is an example of an effect that I think needs to be treated as an instrument itself. Whereas distortion, um, for me, I treat it as that extra little, you know, cherry on top of what needs to already be a really great, clean, you know, riff or something like that. So I think depending on the effect, you kind of approach it differently. Yeah. Here's one last break before we finish up. This track is called Running For Our Lives. It's a track by Disco Killers featuring Sarah Charnas and Kat Nestel. talked about rehearsing it's and, and that's the thing as a person who does a ton of improv yeah I mean I guess most of your shows are, are pretty well improv yeah talk about how rehearsing and practice in improv how do those dovetail in your world yeah absolutely I mean I think most of my shows yeah they I do do a decent amount of improv but I also feel like I don't ever really put myself out on stage having no clue what it is I'm going to I'm going to play next. I haven't gotten to that point where I'm comfortable doing that yet. Um, some players are there. Some players are not. Most concerts that you go and see these days, every note is planned out. There is not a whole lot of improv going on, um, unless it's just a jam session or, you know, it's a more informal occasion. But, you know, if you go to, 
you know, any major artist. Yeah, there's improv, and it's meant to look like improv, but it's not a whole lot of improv. That's the dirty little That's secret that a lot of people don't know. <laughs> That's the dirty little secret that a lot of people don't know, is that, you know, even those, those solos that you think are improv probably aren't because <laughs> we all nobody likes to go out on stage some people do but I'm I don't feel like I'm quite there yet where I can put myself out on stage in front of you know 10,000 people and totally make up what it is I'm going to do um, I'm just not there yet but I, I applaud those years who are I went thinking that that was the thing <laughs> yeah. and, and and thinking you know well I guess they're just making this up all on the spot and that's what I've got to do and I spent a lot of time really struggling and thinking, man, I'm nowhere close to the level these people are because if that is just what popped into their head, no. that stuff doesn't just pop into my head. No, no, and that's a huge misconception is when, when you see a, a guitar player or even a violin player riffing on you know, some solo in a concert, it's, it's oftentimes really planned out. Um, even though it's made to look like the, you know, the best solo you've ever created, um, it, it often isn't. So, um, so I don't say that I, I spend too many shows really making it up as I go along. Um, some, you know, club things I'll do where it really is just for fun and it's, it's a more low-key situation. But anything where there's 10,000 people watching, I've probably got it pretty well rehearsed. Yeah. yeah. You look out and you see a hundred cell phones pointed at you. Everybody's streaming live. Yeah, we, we're gonna have to be a little safer here. Well, so it's not all musicians, certainly, but at least for me, I'm not that good yet. So <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. Well, I have talked. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bust anybody's bubble, but I've talked to a lot of ultra, ultra, ultra high level musicians. Yeah. Who will confirm every word that you're saying? Yeah. So you know, exactly. huge guitar heroes, like people that are. Big names in the business mm-hmm. who you would not think those solos are written out. Oh, of course note they for are. Note. Oh, note for note, they're written out. And it's also because, of, you know, if you've got other people involved, if you're playing with a band, if you're playing with a drummer, if you're playing, everything has to be planned out. And a lot of times, you know, even there's a click track going in your ears. So nothing is really done on the, you know, on the spot anymore. Yeah, I will, I will say in two... Um, that the music business has gotten into this sort of quest for mathematical perfection mm-hmm. with all the studio time and the, the digital punching yeah. and that things can be made as mathematically perfect as possible. Right. That we've sort of, I mean, when you go back and listen to Led Zeppelin, their original recordings, you're hearing stuff that's out of tune. You're hearing timing issues. Oh, yeah. And, but it, I think there's more of an authenticity there. A hundred percent. Um, so there's sort of this balance between wanting to create like this sort of illusion of perfection yeah. with providing some authenticity too, right? 100%. And I think, you know, the rise of technology and the rise of all the different sort of gimmicks that we now have to ensure that we're perfect um, really, unfortunately, hide a lot of that authenticity. Because now if I make a mistake, you know, if a singer is singing into a microphone and he or she makes a mistake, it's quickly covered up by whatever computer program takes over with the recorded version of what they're doing. And if it's a little out of tune, that recorded audio comes right in. Um, So we're almost, our technology has prevented us from being too real or from being, making too big of a mistake. Um, and that's happened over the years. So that, that is a little unfortunate uh, in that we can't you know, showcase not only our perfections but our imperfections. Right. Um, so 
you know, that's okay. But I always, you know, tell young musicians that part of, you know, part of learning and part of getting good at anything is making mistakes. And it's how you cover your mistakes and how you how you move on from them and how you, you know, recover on stage that is what's important. It's not the mistake. It's how do I react to that mistake? What do I do now that I've made it? Um, and how do I move on? So... Yeah. So you yeah. talk about some of these bigger shows and, and how there's pre-recorded versions that are there for the sound engineer to work with. So what are some of the bigger shows you played, some of the bigger venues? I mean, I've, I've seen well, a lot of your stuff, but you know, I think our listeners may, may not have. I mean, if just take Trans-Siberian Orchestra, for example. I mean, I don't know what they're doing now with, the, with their recorded stuff, but I'll... Their guitar players are live. Uh, you know, their violinist is got a beefy track underneath so it's not super super real (laughs) I have to say Um, I've had situations where I've actually gone out and had to fake it because I didn't have an opportunity for a sound check so yeah so I've had to actually do shows where I've been off and that's not fun nobody wants to do that but it's it's happened before you know and there's not too many artists that can say that that's never happened to them. Um, you know, when you're doing a really big show that has got a lot of different pieces going on, um, unfortunately, you know, if somebody says to you, okay, there's no room in the schedule for you to do, like, a really full-on sound check, you say, all right, well, then I'm going to play over myself because, God forbid, something should go wrong. And I've had things go wrong really badly. You always want to protect yourself from that happening because it's much worse to have something go very, very, very wrong. You can have a string break. You can have a solder joint go. You can have have a a wireless can freak out. And I honestly, I hate, I hate to uh, to say that you know that I've done it, but there have been situations where I've played right over myself. It is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. But it happens. (laughs) Well, and and the thing is, you know, there's there's ten thousand people here that have paid 50 to $100 a ticket, there's a yeah. lot of money changing hands in these things. And people have this expectation of perfection. Yeah. And, and you know, there's this whole experience that's being created, and you, you don't want a technical issue to be a, a distraction from that experience. You don't want a technical issue to be a distraction. You know, we've seen so many different technical... Take the Mariah Carey show in Times Square. I mean, who knows if that was meant to be or not meant to be. I don't know if I ever got to the bottom of that. But talk about a technical issue that blew up. Yep. Um, Nobody wants that to be them. Nobody wants that to be them. I had, Even though they said it was a publicity stunt, it was all meant to be. I don't know if I buy that or not. I think that was really, you know, Mariah probably didn't feel too good about going out in front of, you know, six million people and having her microphone yeah. or her inner ear monitors not working. Um, that doesn't feel good for anybody. So I think we all appreciate being vulnerable, and I think we all appreciate also, I think as, as electronic musicians as opposed to acoustic musicians, we are at the mercy of somebody else. We're at the mercy of a sound engineer. And we have to assume that that person is doing his or her job. So that's tricky. That can be really tough. We're at the mercy of speakers. We're at the mercy of a wireless system that could, you know, Yep. crap out I, I think you're at um, the mercy of several wireless systems several like wireless you've got your in-ears and you've got you've got the transmitter and there's yeah there's I know so that much. in major tours there's always a person whose sole job it is to go to a venue and test out all the different wireless signals in the venue yep. and find the perfect channel for that band because God forbid one of the signals drops right. yeah. 
that's it. And it's happened so many times. What was it? It was a recent, I think it was a Grammy show or something where the microphone of one of the, who was it? It was Lady Gaga singing with, um, God, it was was at the Grammys too. It was Lady Gaga singing with, wasn't he forgetting the band, but his microphone, the lead singer of one of the, just completely went out. Completely went out. He had no microphone. I'm thinking, oh my God. That's awful. And he ended up recovering. I'm blanking on who it was. Ended up recovering, grabbing the microphone of somebody else that was on stage and using that microphone. But that's a prime example of a major, you know, screw up that was probably pretty embarrassing. Who knows? Um, maybe he didn't care. Maybe he did. But, you know, it's that sucks. Nobody wants to be in that position. So They make a big deal about the Super Bowl halftime being pre-recorded. Yeah. That's exactly why. Yep. It's exactly why. It's exactly why it's all done ahead of time so that, God forbid, something goes wrong, you, know, you don't have to have a huge mess. So what's what's next for you? Um, A lot of different things. I mean, I'm really excited to continue to make music, to make original music. I have a couple new tracks that are coming out, um, one this summer and then one in the fall. Um one is a collaborative track that I've been working with a group called Disco Killers and uh, their DJ duo and we've got one more track coming out probably this summer and then I've got a solo track that I'm working on that is um, sort of a fun summer house track that I'm releasing in the fall um, and you know continuing to make music continuing to play shows continuing to do what I'm doing reach out to people inspire and you know, hopefully make somebody's day better at the end of the uh, at the end of it all. Yeah, I mean that's sort of that's what matters, right? Kind of what matters. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of at the point where, you know, sort of over what people think. <laughs> I don't really care what you think and you know, judge me, don't judge me, like me, don't download me, I don't know. But if I can just, you know, make somebody's day better, then then I've achieved my goal. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this you're interview. Welcome. I know you're super busy. And, no, you know, no problem. Thanks for listening to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. Please check out Sarah's social media under either Sarah Charnas or Sarah Pink Violin. Her website is sarahcharnas.com, and you can find all the music you've heard today on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. As we leave, we'll listen to her version of a traditional Irish tune called Toss the Feathers. It's just another example of her eclectic taste and versatility. Until next time, rock on, violinists! Violinists!